0: From the book of Exodus, Moses said to God, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, everybody. You know, today was a veritable cornucopia of good texts to preach out of. I almost when after Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart there is no God. I love that text. But I'm not going to preach on that today. Instead, I'm going to talk about something which has probably come up in conversations that you've you've had with friends of yours who are non-believers or maybe even believers. Uh, What do you do with God's wrath? What do you make of God's wrath? And the reason I bring that up is because for most people, if you were to say, "Hey, give me a list of five things that describes God's personality," right? Personality is the tendency to respond. Uh, how would you define God's personality? People would say loving and compassionate and kind and powerful and all-knowing and generous. And if you're a little kid, you'd say big, <laughs> right? Uh, but I'm I'm willing to bet, and I could be wrong. I'm willing to bet that the last thing someone would say was that God is wrathful, but that's the truth. God is a God of wrath. I had a seminary professor whom I won't tell you who was, uh, but he was from, he would always, he would preach and, and he would speak in this sort of fake British accent and he would say God's wrath, which would have been cool, but he was from Pittsburgh. It's like, dude, you don't, don't talk that way, uh, uh, but I'm not going to tell you who he was, but it's a real guy. Um, But what do we make of this wrath idea of God's wrath? It is a common theme in Scripture. The Psalms talk about it today. Uh, The Book of Exodus talks about it today. This idea of God's wrath is sprinkled, well, sometimes (laughs) heavily sprinkled, all throughout Scripture. What do we make of this? God's wrath. And then while we're on that subject, what do we do with this idea of the God of the Old Testament being a God of wrath, wrath, and the God of the New Testament being about nice funny things, like Jesus leaving the 99 sheep to go to find the lost one. How do you reconcile the God of the Old Testament, the seemingly, you know, temperamental despot, with gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Has God changed his mind? Does God have some sort of split personality? Or is there more to it? The answer is there's more to it. And that's the question we're going to dive in on today, this idea of how do, we, how do we understand the wrath of God? And we're going to look at the wrath of God in the context of the love of God. Those are my two points today. The wrath of God, what does it mean? And then the love of God, what does that mean? And how do you reconcile the two? So here we go. The wrath of God. I will tell you, uh, I've Maybe some of you have heard sermons about God's wrath, his wrath. I've never actually heard one, frankly, until I've preached on it myself. Uh, Most people avoid it. You know, little kids are scared of it. Preachers don't like to talk about God's wrath. Uh, Baby Jesus would never be wrathful, would he? Well... The problem is we've got this text from Exodus this morning where God is wrathful, and he's not only just wrathful, he's really angry, and he's not just angry, he's angry over a golden calf. Really? I mean, the creator of the universe is going to be angry over a metal statue? There's got to be bigger things to worry about here, Lord, really. Well, there's a, bigger, there's a bigger picture going on here which will help you understand what is going on. Remember, at this point in salvation history, in the book of Exodus, Right? Uh, second book of the Bible, that the, the Jews had been on, in slavery by the Egyptians, and God had freed them, right? God freed them. He used a guy named Moses to free them, but God was behind it all, and not only did he free them from slavery, he actually led them out into the desert where they, he gave them food, manna, and quail. He gave them water from a rock, and all throughout this period of time, the Israelites, the Jews rather, were learning something important. Here's the key. This period of the wandering in the desert, you know, this wasn't an accident. That period of time was deliberate, deliberately sent by God for one reason, so that God's people, listen, would learn to trust him. And the important thing to see here is that God's people then, and, and God's people now, we learned to trust God through trial and error, through life experience. The Jews had learned that God was trustworthy by having to actually learn that they had to trust him. Sometimes they had no other choice and it's no different with you. You and I learned to trust God exactly the same way. Yeah, you can read scripture, you can know people that know God, you can see their lives being transformed. But look, we all learn our lessons the hard way, amen? Is that true or is it just me? We all learn our lessons the hard way. We all learn about God and his trustworthiness by sometimes making mistakes, sometimes really big ones. Getting it wrong, blowing it, and then seeing how God is still gracious and merciful to us and those around us. Look at back at the, this is exactly what's going on here in the story. Look at the text. Moses has gone up Mount Sinai to meet with God, right? Moses has been the leader for— Since since they left Egypt, and now he's gone, and he's not just gone for like an overnighter. He's gone for forty days, and the people are there. They're used to having Moses close by. They're used to having him there as their leader, and he's gone. What does that do? Well, we don't know why they do this. Maybe they were, maybe they were just freaked out. Maybe they saw an opportunity. I don't know what's going on. Text doesn't say. But somebody gets an idea, and they say, hey, uh, this Moses is delayed. He's not coming back. He's been gone for four weeks. Moses is delayed, verse 32, verse 1. Coming down the mountain, they went to Aaron and said, Make us gods who shall go before us. Here's why. For as to Moses, we do not know what has become of him. Listen to that. Hugely important. Moses, their leader, is gone problem is Moses really isn't their leader. God is. They've confused that, but that's another matter. But the important thing, listen, the person that they trusted, the person that they trusted rather than God is no longer with them, and they begin to panic. They begin to be fearful. What would you do and so they go to Aaron, and they say, hey, we got to do something here. Make us, a, make us a golden calf. And Aaron makes it, and he says something really interesting. He says, here are your gods, O Israel, that led you out of Egypt. So it's not like a clean break from God. It's sort of this, like, syncretistic idea. Now, at first, it looks like the Jews had to sort of, you know, very sort of uh, forgot whom God was. But you know what? We do, exact, we do, I know that I do, exactly the same thing. We might not make a golden calf, right? Unless that's kind of your thing. I don't know. I did run across a news story last week. This is true. It was in the internet. It has to be true. Uh, had a guy, actually well, it was true. I saw a picture of it. It was a guy, you know people have comfort animals now, like a comfort cat or a comfort dog or a comfort hamster. This dude had a comfort alligator that he carried around. I'm not kidding. I pictured this guy with an alligator under his arm. Only alligator under my arm is going to be in a briefcase, I will tell you that right now. But, but the thing, this golden calf, you see, God isn't angry about a piece of metal. He's angered, listen, because this calf is a surrogate for him. He is the one who had led them out of Egypt. He is the one who had been shown them all along that he is trustworthy and they have put, his people have put something in his place. A surrogate, a counterfeit God, and we all do it. When we're scared, when Moses is high on Mount Sinai, when we're not sure what's going on, right? When it hits the fan, we need something to hold on to. Fear has a way of challenging and confusing and testing our faith, of exposing, fear does, exposing really our fundamental lack of trust in God. And so what do we do? We make a surrogate, we make a counterfeit, we make a golden calf. So before I move on, let's just stop there and recognize something important from this text. This golden calf is not about them, it's about you and me, God knows. What is your golden calf? Maybe it's a golden calf. I doubt it. But what is your golden calf? What is the thing that you really rely on rather than God? Everybody's got something, man. And it's probably money. That's a biggie. That's why God, that's why Jesus warns us about it so often. Money isn't bad, but it's an awfully tempting surrogate, an awfully tempting counterfeit God. Maybe that's your maybe that's your golden calf. If I save enough, if I have enough, if I if i if I can 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 hang on to my retirement, then I'll be safe, just in case. Or maybe it's maybe it's your family or your career or your social standing. I don't know. It could be anything, it could be several things. Maybe if I have a strong family or good kids or a good job or people that admire me for what I do, then I'll be safe. Then I'll be secure, just in case. See, here's the thing you got to see, and this is really important and it's profound and it applies to you and me. The golden calf for the Jews or for you is your plan B. <laughs> the golden calf is what is your plan B in case, in case God doesn't do what you want him to do on your time frame so here's a question for you and it's a real one I want you to think about this what's your plan B what's your golden calf what's the thing that you really lean on when you're fearful when you're confused when you're scared this golden calf is something that we put in God's place something we all do We've all got them, but here's the bigger question. We've all got a golden calf, something or some things that we lean on for our true security, but here's the bigger question in all this, which has got me thinking, why is God so angry about it? I mean, really, it's a calf, it's a piece of metal. Why is God so wrathful? Well, here's why. Listen to this. You can't have love without wrath. You cannot have love without wrath. I'll prove it to you. You know, uh, people criticize social media all the time, right? I do. I don't have any Twitter account or any of that kind of stuff, uh, TikTok or any of that sort of stuff. I have a Facebook account, right? I'm a 55-year-old, 54-year-old man. That's, a, that's the best I can do. And an email, right? But social media, it's not only is it is it dangerous in a democracy because it can control speech and you can limit what people can, information people can be exposed to so they don't get offended. Some of the things which have been most transformative in my own life, frankly, are things which offended me, but that's another matter. But social media is dangerous for teenagers and, and, and adults too. Because social media is one of those things where it's really, really easy to bully someone they don't have to be in the same room or the same country. It's easy to be a tough guy or a tough girl when a person attacking you isn't even in, when you're attacking someone who isn't even in the same room or even it in closer to home, right? Remember when your kid went to school in third grade or fourth grade or second grade or whatever? Even if they don't get bullied on social media, remember the time the kid came home from school and was crying because Johnny kicked him on the playground or Mary threw dirt at him? Remember that? Remember what it happened to you that someone picked on you and you went home and you told your parents about it or your kid told you how someone had said a word that they shouldn't have heard or showed them something they shouldn't have seen and someone's ex- their kid's explaining to you, your child whom you love is explaining to you this thing which happened to them on the playground or on social media. What's your reaction? What's your reaction? Wait for it. Your reaction is wrath. Wrath, friends, (laughs) it's a logical consequence of love. We experience wrath when someone we love is threatened. We experience wrath when someone we love is taken from us. And the greater the love, the greater the wrath. You see my point? See, God's wrath is a wrath of love. God is a God who loves us so passionately, so deeply, so individually that God's wrath burns when we are threatened, not because he doesn't love us, but ironically because he does, you see. And if you find that hard to believe, let me challenge you with this idea that someone gave me when I was in seminary. You're like, God of wrath, please, that's so old-fashioned, Father, really? Well, let's, let's stop for a minute and think about this for a sec. It's important. Imagine a God without wrath. Let's imagine the opposite for a minute, shall we? Let's consider a loving God without wrath. Today is the 21st, it is today, right? 21st anniversary of the attacks on September 11th in New York. You remember where you were that day? You remember where you were right now, 21 years ago, if you were alive, Imagine a God who saw the suffering of his people, who watched people fly airplanes into buildings, and the wars that had started, and the people that were killed as a result. Imagine a God who saw all of this and said with a wink and a smile, oh, come on now, why can't we all just get along? Imagine a God who looks down upon this woman who was in Memphis, who was a friend of somebody I know, This woman who was out for a jog at 4.30 in the morning to run a marathon, abducted, raped, and murdered. Imagine a God who sees that and goes, oh boy, really, that's just, that's really really too bad. (laughs) Imagine a wrathless God. Imagine a God that did not stand up for his people. Imagine a God who did not exact justice. Would that God even be worth worshiping? Would a wrathless God even be good? No. And the thing I want to challenge you on today is uncomfortable as wrath sounds, the alternative is far more terrifying. The absent father who says he loves you but doesn't do a thing about it. So if God is a God of wrath and also a God of love, And he's a God of wrath because he's a God of love. And here's the question I want to challenge you on as we move into my second point. What changed? Where's the flip? Where's the click? If the God of Sinai and the God of the New Testament, if the God of Exodus with wrath, and the God of the New Testament are the same God, why the switch? Why the change? Has God changed his mind? Did he forgot to take his meds? Who knows, right? What's going on here? Well, Something changed, and what changed is this. It's not God that changed, but it's the object of his wrath which changed. Paul writes, and we say this as our comfortable words on Sunday morning, this saying, is, this saying is true and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The object of wrath is what changes because God takes the wrath of justice upon himself. So what's changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What's changed is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth as a man. That Jesus Christ became the object of God's wrath in your place and in mine. Thank you, Lord. That God offers you this free gift of his Son. It's an intractable problem, a God of love and a God of wrath, unless you do one thing and that God takes the wrath of justice upon himself, and that is what he does in the person and work of his Son. That Jesus comes to earth to take God's wrath in Paul's place and in yours and in mine, the great mercy of God that is because of a man who takes the wrath of our sins in our place. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received. Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know, in just a few moments, we're gonna I'm going to baptize two people, little Grace Michelle, and Jerry. And in baptism, I will ask them to turn do they turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as their savior? Jerry, who is a grown man, will say, I do. And if Grace does, then those parents will get a medal because she's only a baby. (laughs) <laughs> but the godparents will say it in her place, in her stead. And I will say, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? And they will say, I do. And it is this turning to Jesus, the acceptance of his gift, which we neither earn or deserve, his gift to bear the wrath of God on the cross in our place, to pay the price for our sins, to set us free. He's the new Moses. It is, in, it is here on the cross that we see God's wrath and his love in the very same place in the person and work of Jesus. To him be the glory. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, which is clear and consistent, which shows that you are a God who passionately loves us and passionately wants to protect us from the things which threaten us. Father, we thank you for Jesus who came into the world to save sinners to take the wrath of injustice and sin upon his own shoulders so that we might be free. Make us always grateful for this gift, which we neither earned nor deserved, but you offer to us in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.